0: I must say that's what I call singing. Um, I think I'll get Mr. Simpson to lead the singing because I, I have no voice for it and therefore uh, I have to hold back already. Right? I have no voice left for preaching. We're going to bow together briefly in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray for thy blessing as we turn to thy word. Fill me with thy spirit. Pour thy spirit out graciously. Speak, Lord. Thy servant heareth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My text is found in Isaiah chapter 53, and a few words out of verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. As I pointed out to you previously, uh, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is a mountain peak chapter of the word of God. It was written 700 years before Christ. speaks of his rejection, speaks of him as a man of sorrows it speaks of his sufferings it tells us he made his grave with the wicked and then strangely with the rich in his death it speaks of his intercession for the transgressors of his being numbered with the transgressors and then it speaks uh, perhaps indirectly of his resurrection for it says he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days that could only be by resurrection rising again from the dead. And no uninspired person could have written the prophecy of Isaiah or in particular this 53rd chapter of Isaiah. In many newspapers in the United Kingdom, I don't know what it's like here in Canada, they have this column called uh, Horoscope. And they're predicting uh, what people's day will be like under particular star signs. Now, I don't recommend you even glance at it because uh, I believe it's wrong. Uh, now, there was a man who wrote in one of the papers, uh, and uh, I didn't follow him, but he died. And there was a lady who was a columnist in the same paper, and she wrote an article about him and how much help he had been to her. And she said she felt that the day he died... Uh, under what he had written, under the star sign that he was born under, uh, that he knew he was going to die. Well, the strange thing is, as somebody else pointed out, at that time there were approximately 600 million people that had the same star sign, and they didn't die that day. So if it was a prediction of death, for those under that star sign, 600 million remained alive. Uh, That shows you how fallacious uh, these star signs are and how wrong it is uh, to follow them but uh, we could object to the star signs for many, many other reasons. But here is someone who has written something 700 years before Christ came and he states the situation with minute accuracy. We could go back 300 years earlier we could read Psalm 22 and there we will read they pierced my hands and my feet. They parted my garments among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. How could yeah. that be? How could David have known all those things a thousand years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, some people might say perhaps Christ manipulated things to make it appear that he was the person spoken of in Isaiah and also spoken of in the Psalm. Could he really? Could he have arranged that Roman soldiers who had crucified him would part his garments among them and for his vesture cast lots? Could he have arranged the crucifixion? Remember, Jesus Christ had gone about doing good. He had healed the sick. He had raised the dead. He was the nation's great benefactor. Who would have predicted that he would be rejected, that the Jews would say, away with him, let him Crucified. The truth is, what we have in the Word of God is an inspired book. We can't depend on the words of men, but we can depend on the words that are inspired by the Spirit of God. And I want us to focus upon an astonishing expression. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord. It pleased Jehovah God to bruise him. The person in question is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the first thing that you'll see here is we have an indication of the enormity of the sufferings of the Son of God. It is Jehovah who is inflicting uh, this uh, th- this pain, this suffering, this sorrow on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it says it pleased the Lord. To bruise him. Now, if you and I were struck by a heavyweight boxing champion, that blow would kill us immediately uh, because they are so powerful and uh, we have so little strength in comparison to what they have. The blows of men, the blows of men can be very great. And I'm going to look at some of the sufferings of Christ inflicted by men. Inflicted by the devil, but the blow that is inflicted by the Almighty, by Jehovah, what a blow that is. And the Bible says here, it pleased the Lord, it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. That word bruise means to crush, to shatter, to destroy, to beat to pieces. And when it's applied to the mind, it means to break down or crush by calamities or trials. Albert Barnes says that Christ was under such a weight of sorrows on account of our sins that he was, as it were, crushed to the earth. How dreadful the sufferings of Christ in the liturgy of the Greek Orthodox Church, and we're not Greek Orthodox and we don't agree with them, but there is a statement that is very deep and very powerful Spurgeon quotes it in his sermons. Thine unknown sufferings. Christ's unknown sufferings. You and I have no idea how great were the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can think of physical sufferings inflicted by men. The thorns, the scourging, the buffeting. uh, How they went up to Christ and spat on his face how they slapped him with the palm of the hand or with the back of the hand, how he, he, was, he was wounded and he was bruised and battered by the hands of men. And we might think too of the mental sufferings and here we can see the workings of the powers of darkness. If ever you've been in a difficult situation and you've been depressed and you're in a dark tunnel out of which you can see no way, you will have some appreciation, but it's only a small appreciation of the mental sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. I I sometimes like to think uh, of how uh, we can describe those sufferings. Think of the disciples. They're with Christ, three of them very close to him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's agonising. And then uh, you have the arrest of Christ and Peter a few hours earlier had said though all men deny thee I'll never deny you I, I won't do it Lord I'll stand by you I'm ready now ready to go to prison with you ready to be put to death alongside you there's Peter and he means every word that he's saying I'm with you I'm your follower I love you Lord and I never let you die if John lets you down and James lets you down and Matthew lets you down and the others let you down I won't let you down and yet after making a rash move in Gethsemane and cutting off the ear of Malchus the servant of the high priest he panicked and he fled and he said I- I've never heard of the man I'm not a follower three times he denied that he even knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was it? Why was it? Why was Peter such a coward? The pressure, the pressure of the forces of darkness. And the Lord Jesus Christ had to face that pressure alone. The Bible speaks of him treading the winepress alone. It's a figure of speech. He's on his own. They all forsook him, they all fled. You know that Christ anticipated those mental sorrows and physical sorrows uh, and the infliction of the judgment of God upon him uh, because of our sins. He anticipated it and it came upon him a few days particularly before he was crucified. In John chapter 12, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And that word troubled, has the idea of rendering someone anxious or distressed or agitated Uh, someone is struck uh, with fear with dreads isn't that amazing that the Lord Jesus Christ could be struck uh, with that sort of dread I'm heading forward in a few days time I'm going to bear the punishment for the sins of my people And it came upon him. And then we find him in Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, he is crying out and he's pleading before God. If it be possible, he says, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't possible. He had to bear all the judgment. He didn't retreat from it. But he says, if it's possible. And you see him there in a sweat. His sweat falling to the ground as great drops, or as it might be translated, great clots of blood issuing forth from his skin. You look at him. He's so weakened that the Father sends an angel from heaven to strengthen him. Uh, I speculate in saying that the angel probably strengthened him with words that he spoke from the Father. Although that's just... A speculation. He was strengthened. On he went. And then on the cross we find the Lord Jesus Christ. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? How horrendous. How horrendous. The sufferings of the Son of God. You know, Christ on one occasion said, fear not them that kill the body. And after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you, he says, whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Now, Christ is not saying we shouldn't have any fear of men who can inflict suffering on us. But he's setting out a contrast. He's saying the judgment of God is way beyond any suffering or any sorrow that men can occasion to us. So how dreadful, how dreadful is the just judgment of God against our sin? In Zacharias 13 and verse 7, we read, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. That word fellow means equal or peer. You're my equal and the sword. And it's the father, in a sense, bidding the sword awake and the judgment falling on Christ. And I was looking up at him because I wanted to quote a couple of verses from it. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood the flaming blade must lake, Thy heart its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. What tremendous sorrow. What tremendous suffering inflicted on the Lord Jesus Christ. It pleased the Lord to bruise him you've ever gone through and I've mentioned something of a dark time already but if you've ever gone through a dark time in your life it is extremely distressing and extremely difficult Elijah after his great triumph on Mount Carmel uh, heard the threat of Jezebel and his heart sank we might say into his boots fear gripped him and he arose and he went for his life and he came even into Judah to Beersheba, and yet still, still he had that insecurity and that fear. And uh, he went out into the wilderness, he sat down under a juniper tree, and he said, Take away my life. Lord, take away my life, for I am not better uh, than my fathers. He was so depressed after a glorious triumph, he reached the climax. Now there's the anti climax and there he is. He says, I want to die. I can't take any more, Lord. He's so distressed, and he's so depressed. You know, when I have gone through dark times, I've often spoken to the Lord. I've often said to him, How, Lord, how did you go through with going to the cross to save sinners? How did you do it, Lord? Because the weight of sin that fell on him and the weight of judgment that fell on him is indescribable. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Yes, he suffered physically. Yes, he suffered mentally. But more than all, he suffered when Jehovah bade his sword awake. And we can say with the hymn writer, Oh Christ. It woke against thee. But, but then I, I want to, to bring a second point in here. And I want to ask a question. In what way did it please the Lord to bruise him? That's a strange statement. It says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now, one thing we've got to clear out of the way is this. It didn't please God the Father in any sadistic way. In days gone by, people were killed for sport. Uh, when uh, the gladiators came into the Colosseum, they greeted the emperor. And they said, We who are about to die, salute thee. How savage! How wicked! Men about to slay one another. Sometimes one is killed. Sometimes like, the wounds are so severe. Both of them die in the conflict Uh, and then of course we know that uh, at the same time the the Colosseum Christians were brought in uh, and they were torn to pieces by wild beasts how could men and women and young people consider that sport watching a person torn to pieces watching a man maybe his arm cut off or his leg cut off the sword thrust through the heart Maybe his head cut off. How could people sit and cheer it on? The way that people cheer on to boxers in the ring or to uh, football or you would say soccer teams uh, seeking the ascendancy uh, over one another. How could people find that sport? That is sadistic. But when it says it pleased the Lord, it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. It's not in any sadistic way. God is not sadistic. God has no pleasure, we're told, in the death of the ungodly. So God is not sadistic. So then we have to say, what does it mean when it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him? Well, I'll make some suggestions to you. I'll say this, that it was right and proper in God's eyes that Christ should suffer all that is described in Isaiah 53 and in the other scriptures. You say, why? Because he was bearing his people's sins. 1 Peter 2.24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. And sin is a horrible thing. You and I really, we don't really appreciate it the enormity of the wickedness of sin. I read a statement by a man called Robert Young and he said that only God could bear the sight of a naked soul. You say, what is that all about? Well, a soul uh, that in all its rawness, in all its wickedness, is set forth. If you and I could see what we are like by nature truly rather than just get a a, a sight of it through conviction of sin if we could see it in all its rawness we would be horrified we would abhor ourselves uh, and we would revile ourselves because God sees us he sees the wretchedness he sees the wickedness of our sins and there is Christ He's bearing the sins of a vast multitude. Revelation 7 and 9 says no man could number that multitude. Not saying that a computer couldn't or anything. But you and I were to sit down and try to count the multitude that will be in heaven. Because of the sufferings of Christ, we couldn't do it. We would be worn out long before we could count that multitude. And Christ was bearing the sins of that vast multitude. Just to bear my sins or your sins would have been an enormous problem. Would have meant enormous suffering. But Christ is bearing the sins of a vast multitude and sin has to be punished. Let's never think that God can turn a blind eye to sin. I know there are parents that do that. Uh, Little boy, little girl misbehaves and mum, dad thinks they're very cute when they're misbehaving. God's not like that. God sees sin in all its vileness, in all its filthiness, in all its ugliness, and sin has to be punished. But there is something more here. Uh, i I put it this way to you. God is pleased with the infinite love of his Son. So that uh, Christ was willing to suffer so much in order to save such a vast multitude. Do you not think God was pleased when he looked down and he saw the infinite love? It's the only way I can describe it. The infinite love of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is Christ. He's suffering in ways that you and I cannot imagine. But why is he doing it? What is driving him forward? What is leading him to suffer so much It's his love. His love, his everlasting love. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, the Lord says, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Some might think, well, that everlasting love is love for the future. But actually, it is love in the past. Love in eternity past. And because of that he draws us. Because he always has loved his people, he draws them to himself. And there is Christ. He's equally God with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. He has a heart that is filled with infinite love. He is capable of suffering the infinite judgment of God against sin. Why does he do it? He does it because of his love. And the Father, I suggest this to you the father is well pleased because he sees we might say he feels he feels that love himself and we might say he's well satisfied with what his son is doing bearing his people's sins on the cross I think it is right probably to say that God was and God is infinitely proud of his son's great love And his sacrifice for us. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. It tells us to walk in love. Even as Christ hath loved us. There it is again. And he has offered himself a sacrifice to God. For a sweet smelling savor. Yeah. There's a fragrance. Fragrance that comes from the work of Christ. From the death of Christ. From the love of Christ from the precious blood of Christ shed on Calvary's cross. And the father looks down, and he's well pleased. I think I could say it hurt the father to inflict such sufferings on his son. But I say again, God is infinitely proud of what Christ accomplished, Christ's willingness to suffer, Christ's infinite love. Spurgeon uh, mentions... uh, a situation that I don't think it's on this text but in another text it's concerned a boy who was asked to conduct a party of travellers and to show them the way over a mountain pass and the boy was a very poor boy he had no shoes and there were rough stones on the mountain pass and the travellers they, they felt very sorry for the boy and they gave him money to buy a pair of shoes That was kind. But the boy remembered that his mother had no shoes. And when he came back to his home, he gave the money that he had received from the travellers to his mother to buy shoes for herself. Do you not think that that mother was infinitely proud of her loving little boy? Infinitely proud. Oh, how immensely proud. She must have been. And then I put it back to you. Is not God proud of his son? And that we may say that God is pleased with Christ also because he bore every stroke and paid the price in full for his people's sin. In John 19 and verse 30, we have that great statement, it is finished. No greater work was ever done when God wished to create all he had to do was speak when he had the work of redemption before him it was far greater than speaking far greater than making the sun and the moon and the stars far greater than the creation of man and how amazing that all is the psalmist says I will praise thee for I am fearfully wonderfully made marvellous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well what an amazing creature man is what an intricate creature framed by the hand by the wisdom by the power of God and yet that is nothing in comparison with the work of salvation and Christ went to it Christ came because of his love And he accomplished the work, he completed it. I think I mentioned the other week that that expression, it is finished, is one word in the Greek. It's in the perfect tense. The perfect tense indicates something that is finished, whose effects continue. The work is done, the effects continue. How do we know the effects continue? Well, I'm sure many of you here have already benefited. You've come to Christ, you've repented, you've received him as Saviour. Why are you saved? Because of something he did 2,000 years ago. God is pleased that Christ completed the work. Pleased that Christ didn't turn back until all that work was accomplished. Pleased that he never wavered from eternity past until the last blow had been inflicted how amazing that is you see Christ knew in eternity past what he had to do if you knew you had to suffer horrendous pain a year from now you'd lose your mind today you'd lose your mind Christ knew in eternity past what he had to suffer he never turned back he came into this world his life was perfect his miracles were mighty his compassion was infinite. And he never stopped until he could say, It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then he bowed his head. And the Bible puts it, He gave up the ghost. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Jesus. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. And remember. How pleased the Father is with him. How pleased that he was willing to suffer so much, we might say, to save so little. Yes, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. If you ever read of sufferings uh, uh, that seem to us uh, enormous beyond imagination? You've only the very faintest idea of what it cost the Son of God two years ago a Chinese man by the name of George Chen died George Chen was born in 1934 1932 sorry and George Chen became a Christian when he was a young man started three churches in China then was imprisoned spent 18 years in prison and George Chen in, in prison, suffered uh, enormously. Uh, when they couldn't break his spirit, what they got him to do was to shovel human excrement. And he did that for years. He said the only good thing, really, or the good thing was nobody came near him because of the stench. He prayed and he sang praises to God. And after 18 years in prison, Uh, He was released and he travelled back to his home. He wondered if any of the churches had survived. He discovered his wife had died. He discovered that his son had been killed, murdered. And he wondered as he came back to the scene of his labours, would anybody know him? And an old lady spoke up and she saw him. She recognised him and in a very nice way she went to him didn't throw her arms around him in the polite ways that uh, the people have there she shook hands with him he wondered what is left of my work and he discovered that instead of 300 believers there were now 5,000 believers in the churches that he had planted God had moved but how how can you think of what he had to do shoveling human excrement. And yet that, George Chen would say, was nothing, nothing in comparison with the sorrows and the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And bear this in mind, as we read in verse 9 of this chapter, Christ himself was entirely innocent. Uh, There was no deceit, it says, in his mouth. Let me read what it says in verse 9. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. I want to make just a few final observations. As a result of his sufferings, Christ is highly honoured. We read in Philippians chapter 2 of what we might call the downward descent of Christ. Coming down from the height of glory. And then we read of his upward descent. Let me read just a few verses. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, as a result of what he suffered, God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Aren't you pleased with Christ when you read uh, of these things? You see the glory of Christ, the greatness of Christ. Does he have honour in your heart, in your life? Have you crowned him as the king of your life? And then, as I've already pointed out, as a result of his enormous sufferings, a great multitude great multitude will be in heaven from every nation from every people group from every language we might say from every dialect there will be people in heaven because of what Christ has done the hymn writer said crown him with many crowns the lamb upon the throne and that's what we will do when we reach heaven and then something more what a dreadful thing what a dreadful thing sin is. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. If the Father had to inflict, had to inflict such sufferings on his son because of our sin. What a dreadful thing sin must be. And I say this as I finish. Flee from it. Flee from it. Run. Run into the arms of a loving Savior. Embrace Jesus Christ. You say, Will he have me? Well, listen. To the last invitation in the word of God. A gospel invitation. And the spirit and the bride. The bride's the church. People like uh, you and me who are saved. The spirit and the bride say come. Let him that heareth say come. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will. Whoever wants to. Let him take the water of life freely. Great saviour. Great God. Oh run to him. Follow him trust in him do his will let's bow in prayer father in heaven we pray that thou would apply the truth to every heart apply it to my heart apply it to each one of us may we hear thy voice and may we walk according to thy will forgive us lord for our failures forgive us for the great sins that cause such shame and sorrow and suffering for christ and grant that those who are unsaved will hear the call of the gospel And surrender to thee. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn is the Doxology. We did actually sing it as part of the psalm. It's found opposite hymn number one. So, right at the start of the book, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We're going to stand as we sing. It's opposite hymn number one at the start. Thank you.